0: This episode of Right at the Fork is brought to you by Zupan's
1: Markets. And we're happy to talk about Zupan's for the holidays Uh, until the 22nd at noon at Zupan's.com slash holidays. This year you can get five, yes, five different rib roast varieties, Mm. Snake River Farms, Wagyu, Grass Run Farms, which is 100% grass-fed beef. Harris Ranch Prime Dry Aged, and of course, Harris Ranch Prime and Harris Ranch Choice. You can also get your choice of traditional hams, king crab legs,
0: wild shrimp, crown pork roasts, and much, much more.
1: And if you don't want to do any cooking, That's me, I'm pointing to myself. There you go. Um, they have fully cooked turkey inside, dishes ready to heat and eat. That makes life easy. And of course, don't forget desserts. Some of the best desserts in Portland from some of Portland's best local bakeries. You can find that at Zoopans. You know, you don't need to go around a, a lot of different Different bakeries. You can just go to Zupans and Saint Honore's there right. for starters and there, mm-hmm. there are quite a few. Uh, also Brian Crute, the holiday appetizer of the season, featured in both Forbes and Real and Simple Gift Guides created by Marin French Cheese Company. So we're talking about brie wrapped in a puff pastry, just
0: warm till goo. I love brie that's been baked a little bit. Warm till gooey, served alongside your favorite crackers or
1: bread, paired with jam or honey. Have you ever seen the selection of crackers and jams oh, yeah. at no, Zupan's? That is where we go for it. Yeah, no, there's so many right mm-hmm. in the cheese section. And of course, the 12 Days of Wine. They have a large format wine sale at Zupan's. Rombauer, Silver Oak, Beaufrere. Uh, Crystal and more. 12 bottles of large format wines at hot pricing throughout the end of the year. So that, that we can stick with until uh, the 31st. And, of course, anytime you want some good wine, go into Zupans. Absolutely. They've got the three locations, McAdam, Burnside,
0: Lake Grove, and, of course, always, Zupans.com. You know, we've reached the end of the year, Chris. Chris Angeles, Portland Food Adventures.
1: And Court Johnson, Kink.fm, Father, lots yes. of things. Mm-hmm. Podcast podcast co-host.
0: Yes. Uh, we, we, we've we reached the end of the year of our fifth year of Right at the Fork, Portland's Food Scene Podcast, by the way. And it's the end of the year episodes. Yeah, we've been doing these end of the year episodes
1: for quite a while. Have we, de- I, we did some in the first year, right? I think we we figured out something to do. I remember we had one with... Heather Jones and uh, Missy Byr- Mackey and Byron, Byron Beck. Beck. One year, yeah. that was the second year. That was the second year, I don't know. Maybe maybe the first year we didn't do it. Uh, we figured something out. Right. Go back and look. Regardless. Actually, that's a that's a good point. Go back and look at back all and of look them and listen because to all. We them. have we have hundreds of episodes. Oh, yeah. And if it doesn't have to be new, we try to make them evergreen. So if you yeah. haven't. It's a, it's a nice binge watch. A lot of people binge listen, we found. Yep. So go binge listen. Back to 2014. Yeah. We started with uh, Don at Yelp. Yep. Is that right? Yeah, that sounds and right. And then Nick Zookin was number two. He was number two. And then we had all sorts of yeah. great episodes after what's,
0: that. what's interesting, though, is we talk about these evergreen episodes, and again, most of them are. These end-of-year recaps, while they're evergreen, they're still kind of recapping what
1: happened in the Portland food scene in 2018. Right, so if you want to go back to previous years, you can hear what Maddie John Baman yeah. said uh, and Gary the Foodie about and what was Huffman happening. made some statements once that were pretty. I don't know, exactly. like kind of so ground shaking at time. See what's happened, yeah, along the way. But at any rate, we're lucky, and for we just we love having Brooke Jackson Glidden from Eater here mm-hmm. with us because she's really on top of what's going on. Yeah, she's a very. She's never at a loss for words. Right, <laughs> so which is great. Right, so and she uh, is kind enough to come and share with us here her uh, the highlights of 2018 when mm-hmm. she first started writing for Eater came from the uh, Salem Statesman Journal. Yep, and uh, became their editor in February. So we talk about a couple of the things that happened this year, not only in openings but also in controversies. And, uh, and then next week, tune in again, and we're going to talk about what she's looking forward to most in 2019. 19. Yeah, <laughs> it's you. the look ahead. It takes a little. It's a, you know, remember the days where you actually used to write out checks and so right. forth, and you'd write 2018 I don't, I don't have that problem. I don't have that problem anymore. Yeah, it doesn't happen anymore. It's yeah. automatically written out. But there is one thing that, um, that uh, oh, we'll talk about it next week we have to do we we do another this is a tease for a tease yeah tease for a tease so we'll (laughs) talk so this week is looking back next week tune in again and subscribe yes and tell your friends to subscribe to the podcast because that way it's pushed to your app Mm -hmm. Uh, by the way I discovered uh, I think it's called CastBox my favorite new podcast podcast that's where I've been listening to the podcast and others very nice Um, but subscribe so you listen and next week Brooke's going to talk about what she's looking forward to most Brooke jackson Glidden on the podcast.
2: Right at the Fork is proud to be supported by Zoopans Markets. For over 40 years, unsurpassed quality from the best meats and wines to the freshest baked goods, flowers, and more. With a delicious emphasis on locally sourced items. The best of the Northwest Bounty can be found at your closest Zoopans on West Burnside, McAdam, or Lake Grove. And at Zoopans.com. Eat well, put taste first, love your food by ringside steakhouse owned by the peterson family for generations ringside steakhouse has long been a landmark of the portland landscape featuring impeccable service that has set the standard for nearly 75 years enjoy the finest aged steaks their world famous onion rings and even ringside's legendary late night happy hour whether it's a special occasion a business dinner or just a great night out make a reservation at ringsidesteakhouse.com today and by portland food Adventures. Inviting you to listen to Right at the Fork, episode number 170 with Proud Mary Coffee's Nolan Hurdy. Then imagine yourself eating and sipping your way through Melbourne, Australia this April for nine incredible days of VIP treatment at Nolan's favorite places in Proud Mary's home city. It's all at PortlandFoodAdventures.com under the Trips tab. Contact Right at the Fork host, Chris Angeles for more information and extra savings on these PFA food journeys.
1: Thanks for coming in.
3: It's always a pleasure.
1: And thank you for your Salem recommendations. I've been, uh, I've been going down to Salem more than I ever have in my 13 years here recently. Oh, really? And I uh, have, have someone down there that I dine with uh, mm-hmm. once in a while. Mm-hmm. So we've, we, I've taken your um, ACME, mm-hmm. your recommendation for ACME, yeah. and that was really nice. And then couldn't find anything on a Sunday night. Until you came along with, what, what? how do you pronounce that again? Chicha. Chicha, right, yes. last night. So um, that was really good.
3: You know, it's funny. When I was in my like first month as a critic down there, I wrote a story specifically about places to go on Sundays because there was nothing that I was really excited about open those days. And some of those restaurants that are Chicha opened, I think, Within my last six months of leaving, some places started opening up up, but yeah, you know it's the the go to's are sort of hard to find on those days down there.
1: Well, not only that, I knew you had given I went back and listened to our podcast, where Salem was a small segment of the uh, right. outside of Portland uh, recap that you did, and so I listened to that. Um, but then I posted on Facebook, i mean, I have quite a few friends and a lot of people in the food business. Where to go in Salem? You, again, were the only one who chimed in. Where are all these people? Or is it just me?
3: That's going down to Salem? Well, it's... No one
1: one gave me a Salem recommendation.
3: Yeah, I think um, it's sort of a weird location, Salem, where it's it's an hour away from Portland, so you're not... If you're going on a road trip somewhere else, unless you, Salem is your destination. right?
1: Or you're going through and think, right. I want to get out of this area. And- but I
3: feel like if you're like within the last hour, you're just going to push
1: back Well, up that's true. Wherever home. you're heading.
3: Yeah. But I, I really do think actually the move is if you're going to bend or you're going to the coast, Salem is the place to stop. And I usually stop for tacos, but those are more of like a midday kind of thing. Right. Yeah.
1: Well, I appreciate your recommendations, and I will say this, so what we're going to do is today's episode is going to, we're going to talk a little bit about what happened in 2018, your first year as yes. Eater Editor. What was the exact, when did you actually start? So
3: I actually started in March, so I okay. missed the first two months, um, but I started off right with a bang, um, and with some kind of tough stuff. This was a a year with some sort of tough food controversies and... and um kind of meaty news to sort of get started in Portland. Um, but yeah, I started in early March, um, just as all of those wine bars were getting ready to open. Mm-hmm. So that sort of defined my first few months working there. You know, I, I was going, okay, Canard is about to open. And okay, Omens is going to open. And I think I got to a point where I was like, okay, every week I'm writing about someone who's opening a wine bar.
1: And, and interestingly, interestingly enough, looking back from my perspective, those were the biggest bangs oh, right yeah. off the bat. You know, looking from the, from December of 2018, those were still the biggest bangs. No oh, slight absolutely. to anybody else who opened, but, um, those were the ones that were the, the most, most noise. talked about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
3: that's right. Yeah. I think, um, Kennard, I mean, <laughs> I think even in like the social media posts we did, it's like, it's a shocker. Like, oh, of course, um, Canard won restaurant of the year, uh, just because it was everyone's restaurant of the year. It made national lists. Um, so, you know, it, and, you know, I went back like two days ago and it, it still rocks. You know, I, I think that um, Kennard definitely kind of defined 2018. But, you know, that's n- saying nothing negative about all the other great wine bars that opened. I still am a big champion of Arden, um, the Pearl District. I think it's um, one of the most quiet of the ones that our people are talking about in mm-hmm. terms of wine bars. Um, and then even the ones that I didn't talk about as much that are great, like the pop-ups, like Sardine Head. You know, it was it was just a a total year defined by that stuff. And also sort of redefining, okay, what what is a wine bar? Um, is it a place where you eat charcuterie and drink, you know, Italian reds? Probably not anymore. Now it's it's gonna be different. It's gonna involve better chefs and more interesting wines and maybe even some really cool cocktails.
1: Yeah, I think um I think that uh yeah, to find a whole new category. And I think they played off of each other very well. So I could, I did a few crawls, mm-hmm. Kennard to OK Omens to Anateka. So that was a fun thing to do back in the beginning of the year.
3: A lot now, of them are pretty close to each other, too, yeah, which is easy, kind of fun. Yeah, it's easy
1: to do that. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. So I guess um, I wanted to ask you your perspective on this. How do you feel? And maybe this came up in your interviewing process with uh, the folks, what's the parent company again? Vox? Yes. Not Vox. Yes, Vox. Um, in your interviewing process, how do you think your approach as a young lass, as opposed to yeah. Matt, Maddie, was uh, I can't, I'm not going to call him old, but he was quite, you know, yeah. at least had a decade on you. I'm, uh, I'm
3: definitely greener than he is. Right, yeah,
1: exactly. How do you think that has played in the coverage that Portland has had on Eater? Um,
3: yeah, you know, I think that, um, right off the bat, we were covering um harder news um on the site. I mean, I think that um like Matt, what
1: what would you call harder news?
3: Well, we had um, I would say the two sort of big, difficult stories um that come to mind when I think about you know how I covered the year. We had the stuff that happened with Kochka, that bizarre. So, pseudo controversy, I guess, um, surrounding the guy wearing a shirt that had Luftwaffe written on it. Right. And how, you know, and I think all of these food stories are emblematic of a larger conversation surrounding, um, you know, conflicts between people within Portland um, and
1: all over the world. And, and all in, over the world. In this country now.
3: Yes, exactly. So, you know, this story about um, a customer goes into Kachka, he's wearing a shirt that had the word Luftwaffe on it. It refers to the um, German Air Force and people associate it with the Nazi-era German Air Force. Um, so, you know, within like my first two weeks working at Eder, um, I'm researching and reaching out to, you know, the, you know, uh, Holocaust experts and professors to try to figure out, okay, <laughs> is this iconography associated with the Nazi era or not? Um, because, you know, a lot of people were saying that this was an, a Nazi shirt, that he came in wearing Nazi propaganda. Um, the customer, you know, according to Kachka, I never spoke directly to this customer, but according to the folks at Kochka, the guy was very confused. And the, you know, waitresses, essentially when when this man was confronted within the restaurant, didn't really know what was going on and thought it was like a banned shirt or something and, and you know, kicked out this woman. It totally went viral. Um, people essentially said, oh, so they're, you know, Nazi apologists, which I just want to remind everyone that uh you know uh Bonnie Morales is a descendant of belarusian jews right um essentially, what the folks at Kacho said is that that customer um bought the shirt uh a for an an exhibit at an air force museum um like you know aero science and it essentially was sort of like a history plane nerd kind of shirt purchase. Um, and I think I believe they said that um, he, in fact, was Jewish. So, you know, you have kind of these interesting sort of controversies that bubble up and f- trying to figure out what's going on is is sort of hard to parse. And, you know, it takes a lot of it, just sort of big, murky stuff to tackle yeah. really yeah. early.
1: I'll tell you, it's a t- it's tough. For, it's a tough call for you, right. especially when it was new. Mm-hmm. So we had Bonnie and Israel on the podcast right. and we actually deter I I thought, you know, If this guy, I didn't spend a ton of time researching at all. So he bought a shirt and he was probably, he might have been, I'm not going to get involved in this, but might've been just ignorant about what he was wearing Mm -hmm. and it blew up. And you know what? It's time to not make it a deal any longer. Just leave it, leave it alone for at least as far as they're concerned. And we didn't, I didn't, Mm -hmm. we didn't even talk about it on the podcast. It was right after that. We had planned on it and then Mm -hmm. I thought, why flare it up more? I'm not. You know who's looking for ratings on this podcast
3: right and uh, and after that follow up story, because you know at first it was sort of a okay, this is what we know at this point mm-hmm. in general, covering this stuff i I try to gather whatever information we can find at that point and and you know um try to inform the public as best I can, right? So you know, once we had more information um it 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 was sort of a a constant correction, you know, just in that like. Some people really did associate it with Nazi propaganda, but we could really identify that the shirt was sold at this museum. I believe the museum pulled the exhibit because, you know, they didn't want these shirts associated with with the Nazi era. And I think it's a particularly sensitive time for people right now and people who, you know, have relatives and descendants from that part of the world and who are feeling like there is a newfound um, appreciation for neo-Nazism. I, I don't even want to say newfound, but it's, you know, there's a larger well, there's conversation a about it now. There's a rise. Yeah.
1: There, right. there, there's uh, actually an endorsement that it seems to be okay for right. from, from so the White House. Are, are, so people
3: are particularly sensitive to it. And so it it, it creates, um, it, it just becomes a part of this um, heightened attention world trying to right. people are trying to identify and see if they can you know it's it's just a particularly volatile period of time right um, so
1: a little thing it's like a little yeah. wound it can come in it right become big thing i think the other thing i can you might you might have a different impression but mm-hmm. the recent controversy over stanich stanich yes. is the same thing a lot of social issues going on there that absolutely that heat up that almost have nothing to do with the restaurant itself mm-hmm. um the restaurant yeah, well it has a little bit. But that yep. was a that was a tough one. And I just commented to my buddy Nick Zukin this morning on some <laughs> comments that he had made on it. And I just think that um here's what I think. I my opinion on that again, I didn't research it thoroughly. But once Stanich's owner goes on on T V or wherever he was and started talking about reasons that it closed down, mm-hmm. he opened the door to right. to that to investigations and so forth. Mm-hmm. If he had said no comment, then I think it might have been a different deal. Mm-hmm. But um anyway, that's what I feel about it. How do you
3: Right. So so that's a again, I I that was probably number one when I thought of stories that sort of um news stories that dominated the conversation uh this year, I definitely think of Stanich's would
1: you recap that? Because yes, there may absolutely. be people who are listening who have no idea of course. what happened.
3: So um Steve Stanich uh is uh, the owner of a longstanding burger restaurant sports bar um, called Standitch's. Um and you know it was sort of a sort of long known as a place where you could get you know a, a good cheeseburger, um, watch a game, um, and in 2017, Kevin Alexander um, spent, I believe, yeah, he spent the full year. I think he went to 308, 330 burgers, something like that. Traveled around the country to try to find the best burger in America. And it was um, Kevin's sort of interest in creating a really successful list, like beyond just everyone rewriting the same lists or, you know, trying to do these national lists, but essentially just picking and choosing from local reporting around the country. um, He wanted to create a list that was, well researched and well reported, um, which I think is a noble idea in, in general.
1: Um, <laughs> and firsthand, by the way, he didn't. Right. a lot of, like Thrillist and Eater, they have editors in each city, so it was someone, a one man job. Someone yeah. takes a conglomeration and then somehow makes a list that Brooks mm-hmm. Brooks' idea of the best burger right. is going to be better than the so. But he wanted to
3: he wanted taste to be able to himself. evaluate himself. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So his favorite burger in America. Uh, from that research, that that year long research trip, um, was Stanish's, uh the next cheeseburger at Stanich's. Did so, you ever
1: have the cheeseburger? I didn't. Okay, I missed it. I can't it. say I have, have yeah. anything. Um,
3: but you know, he he liked the place. Um, in his follow up piece that we'll get into, you know, he liked the sort of quote unquote authenticity of how of of um, Now. Steve Stanich, you know, in his interview in that period was was emotional, felt like his parents would be so proud, um, you know, sort of seemed pretty grateful in those conversations. And then um, essentially. uh, Within, I want to say, six months after that piece ran, um, the restaurant sort of closes for a quote unquote deep cleaning and he tells the Oregonian that, Steve Stanish tells the Oregonian that the restaurant, the, it was the worst thing that ever happened to him. And and that, that being repair. put on that list, yeah. being put on that list was incredibly awful. They couldn't keep up with the business. Um, you know, employees couldn't handle the stress. The cleaning regimen wasn't as good, you know, and now they had to close the restaurant and clean. Um, and, you know, looking back on that now, it seemed like he had a... Um, was interested in blaming a lot of people that weren't himself, you know, like his employees were getting lazy and, you know, Kevin put him on this list and, and, you know, in general just seemed to have, was pointing a lot of fingers and then sort of um, stepped back and essentially said, I don't want to blame anyone, you know? Um, but what we found out um, is that Standish' has had a long history of uh, trouble with, the law in certain ways. Um, He, in 2014, um, was arrested for strangling his wife um, in front of their child and was put, it was because he pled no contest. uh, It was reduced to a misdemeanor and he had to go on probation, but that probation kept getting violated. Um, He tried to contact his wife at one point, his now ex-wife. And, you know, he was pulled over um, I think the thing that I found pretty notable when I was looking through those court documents um, was he used the same excuse. Um, you know, he was pulled over. He said, I'm, I just left awake and I had two drinks to honor my friend. And then he used that second excuse again. Um, you know, just sort of kept getting in trouble a little bit and was in and out of court um, through that period of time where the restaurant remained closed. Um, the restaurant. It's still not open as far as I know. It, it wasn't open from the last time I wrote about it, which I believe was just two weeks ago. Um, and he's, he was adamant he was going to open in December. But, you know, I've, again, have been checking in on this story. And, um, you know, it, it was going to open next month. It's going to open next month. You know, kept saying that it was going to reopen. And then it just never really did. Um, while we were sort of checking in on it, probably eight months after they closed, um, we start, re- started receiving tips. Um that it was worthwhile to look into his background, his criminal background,
1: from employees or from
3: um just tipsters, tip- and I so I pulled documents and and I think probably at the same time, Willamette Week was working on their story, we were pulling documents and try, trying to prepare our own. Meanwhile, uh, Kevin Alexander uh, was working on his own story, um, essentially a large mea culpa talking about how he killed this restaurant. I believe the name of it was I Found the Best Burger in America and I Killed It. Um, and really kind of this large-scale exploration of the role of food media in America and how it negatively, even positive press, negatively impacts restaurants. And it was, you know, really widely um, adored. You know, he was on NPR. Because
1: it seemed humble.
3: It did. To say. Yeah. And, and I think the thing about kevin is is he really want even from wanting to do the burger list kevin wanted to explore this idea of we're creating a a food media culture that creates bucket lists and and is that something that actually benefits the restaurants we cover and you know the other follow-up question that i don't think kevin quite explores is is it our job to serve as just a megaphone for restaurants you know um and i think that isn't a question i'm necessarily answering. I, I just think that it it was something that Kevin wanted to explore. So Kevin writes this piece. It's really widely celebrated. And Willamette Week goes, bang, releases this story yeah. on on Steve Stanich yeah. and his history and how it probably wasn't just that Kevin wrote a story about it that forced that restaurant to close. Um, I knew that Kevin Alexander was al- aware of this information, was aware of...
1: Before he wrote that piece. Right. Okay,
3: we had talked to him about it essentially. Um, and so I reached out to him, and he said he was aware of it, but he didn't fully understand the breadth of it and hadn't pulled the documents so essentially, he was then called out that that journalist was called out for um I believe the term I heard from the from some tweet was uh, journalistic malpractice that because he had not followed that lead he chose to sort of write a story within the um within the framework that he want, of the story he wanted to write regardless of you know the information that might impact that story that is relevant to readers um so you know he has been very much um in the hot seat as well as Steve Stanich Steve Stanich is adamant that the restaurant will reopen but at this point
1: how's he handling the his business and his uh steve Stanich? response since this all came out
3: well um so i've interviewed <laughs> steve Sanders before um he's a tough interview um because he'll talk to you he'll go off the record and talk about everything from you know the opioid crisis to you know jokes his dad used to tell him and it's hard for him to sort of get to the main points are answered direct questions. Um, And I think you can kind of see that in his response within the Willamette Week piece. Um, He says it has nothing to do with it. His criminal stuff had nothing to do with his experience. His divorce had nothing to do with, um, you know, the fact the restaurant hasn't reopened. Um, His explanation is that uh, people left when the restaurant was closed, had to deep clean. A lot of people left and he couldn't get people to, you know, come back into the restaurant and couldn't keep staff along, and and was having trouble rehiring, which doesn't necessarily sound like a bad excuse. That's true. It across sounds the realistic
1: word. with right. every, with the ability for people to find chefs and right. labor market right now.
3: Exactly. I think that in general, Cook, cooks, I should say, right. In general, um, and you know, again, while I was working on my own subsequent story on this, um, the conversation I would have a lot with editors was, do we, you know even if this didn't impact his year and how long it took the restaurant to reopen, is it relevant for people to know? And I think where we landed is he became a public figure. And I think as a consumer, it's worthwhile for consumers to know whether or not the people who own the businesses that they frequent participate in illegal activity or, or in certain cases, allegedly abusive activity if, if they've been arrested or, you know, um, have any sort of criminal record. Um, I think being an, Conscious consumer means knowing, you know, where they source their ingredients and who their chefs are and who's behind, you know, that whole story of the restaurant. And sometimes that means knowing some dark stuff as the whole Me Too movement sort of reflects.
0: Hey, Chris, right now, it'd be a great opportunity for us to stop for a moment and just talk nicely about Ringside Steakhouse. What other ways sort to talk about them? Well, it's really true. Every time I talk about ringside with the folks here at Kink, when I'm telling them where they should go eat, oftentimes it's like, well, what do you want? Oh, you want a steakhouse? You got to go to ringside. And then it always leads right into the best onion rings on the planet.
1: Yeah, well, there's that, but there's a lot. I just had the uh, rib steak for two, bone in. Oh, yeah. Last time I was there, a couple yeah. well, a week ago or so ago, that that was incredible. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget that we had Becky McGrath of the chef from Burgerville here. Yeah. Who, when we asked her what her favorite burger was on the planet, she said it was at Ringside. Ringside. So that's right. Um, so there's that, but that that bone-in rib steak for two is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, the service at Ringside is second to none. And, of course, they have some really special Sunday and Monday nights. Sunday night they have a three-course meal. Yeah, Chris, that three-course
0: supper special is what they call it. $44 before 6 or $54 after 6. It's pretty great. We've We've done that before together. Right. And then I think both of us upgraded to the lobster mashed potatoes. Okay, you got to do that upgrade. Phenomenal fee. Oh, it's so good.
1: Yeah. And then, of course, Monday nights is prime rib night. Yep. So if you like the prime rib, it's a great deal at ringside. And it's a, you know, it's a good opportunity to get in there, too.
0: Yep. Uh, right now, they've got a great deal going on with gift cards. So through the end of the year, when you buy $300 worth of gift cards, they're going to give you a $50 bonus card just for you. Or if you buy 500 worth of gift cards, Get a $100 bonus card just for you.
1: Yeah, you don't have to use it for you either. You can you can actually make that a gift. There you go. So just get double the value, or more, not double, but extra value for your dollar. Absolutely. Side.
0: So here's what you do. You go to ringsidesteakhouse.com, set up reservations, maybe for this weekend, and check it out.
1: Do you still feel like that had this whole Thrillist article and the closing not mm-hmm. occurred? Do you still think it's relevant to say, or it's right it, to say? If the restaurant had
3: reopened if the restaurant had reopened and people could go back to that restaurant and and participate in, I think they deserve to know that he, I mean, the thing that's interesting is this happened in 2014 and no one covered it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, best burger in America, you know, we're in a city. I mean, I think Helen Rosner in her piece for The New Yorker mentioned, you know, it, if you Google Steve Stanich, I think it shows up like third or fourth um, in the Google results, His his mugshot. And I think a lot of folks in town felt like, maybe in that question, is it relevant to cover these things that maybe it's not. Um,
1: but I, that, that's not really my question. Sure. My, so this became news. Yes. He put himself out there as a public figure. Mm-hmm. I guess my question is, and we'll, we're, sure. I'm not diverting, but so if there's a restaurant out there that's just open mm-hmm. and operating and people like it and it's mm-hmm. popular and a chef is uh, strangling his wife or whatever he might, or an owner mm-hmm. is doing anything that's illegal, mm-hmm. tax fraud, anything—is that necessarily something that needs? Is at what point do you consider something personal? I guess it's not when it hits when it when it hits police blotters, uh, yeah. and you can Google it and see someone's criminal behavior. Right. I suppose it's not. So if,
3: if if you know you think look in the crime pages of a newspaper, you're going to see stories about you know. Everybody, everybody, Um, (laughs) if they if they commit a crime like that, Um, I think in many cases it it deserves to be covered. I think there are exceptions. And I think that's when things are really, truly personal. So, you know, like uh, the divorce of a business owner, you know, I don't I'm not going to cover someone's divorce proceedings. I'm not going to cover. I think, you know, a classic example is um, outing. Someone, you know, that maybe is married but is participating in, in, you know, gay relationships outside of that, extramarital affairs. I'm not going to cover yeah, that. that's
1: personal. Yeah. yeah.
3: But I think especially in situations where it's somebody who has committed a crime um, or somebody who is harassing employees. Um, I think the, it, it's my duty as a journalist to to let people be informed in that way and, and bring that to light.
1: Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I think especially since it's made news. It's very interesting mm-hmm. in light of the fact that we, you know, and it sounds like uh, Steve Stanich's, however you want to look at it, is is paying a price mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for his crimes because now that it's coming out, it's, it's going to affect him. Right. But we have a president who did similar things and it has never affected him. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, I guess it's you know, just ironic to me that it's that there's injustice in the world. And then in some cases it's a gray area and I'm not calling this a gray area, but
3: uh, I think in general it's, you know, and this is such tricky stuff to talk about. It's, it's an ethical question that I think journalists across the country right now um, are really sort of thinking about. And, and, you know, with this Stanich stuff, I think it's been interesting to talk to a lot of people in my field about, In general, you know, should we be doing criminal background checks on every restaurant that we have? Is
1: that what Eater is all about?
3: Right. Well, I think Eater in general has, especially this year, we've been covering a lot of Me Too stories. Um, I think.
1: Does that come from the top or is that each editor? I think in general, each editor is making their own decisions.
3: um, I would say a little bit of both. I think um, some editors are actively seeking out those stories and and you know, I think Serena Dye at Eater New York is in general a really smart and capable journalist who thinks to cover as many lawsuits as she can. You know, she's looking for what what can I learn about a business beyond what it serves. And I think that's part of being a responsible food journalist is to understand that food is never just food. Food is so much more than that. And in many ways cases food involves the people that serve it and make it and create it and grow it. And those people can be often really complicated figures and understanding that and also holding people accountable that needs to be held accountable, especially when they're in a more public space than they've ever been. is really relevant. And, you know, remembering that these are people that are working at these restaurants, that this guy, you know, whoever he is, um, you know, whatever restaurant owner, however that person is behaving, that impacts the people that work for him in many cases or the people that are participating in that restaurant you know there are plenty of stories i guess what i'm saying is that rarely those stories are isolated rarely is it one person one bad thing happened and there's nothing nothing else like it usually one right. story comes up like that a lot of other people start to feel a little bit more brave and based on the evidence i think those you know murmurs of false accusations i think are far less prevalent than people may like like to believe mm-hmm. yeah
1: very interesting. So those right. were, were those the two big stories. You
3: um, there were so many uh, other
1: than openings and closings. I think
3: but. we've talked about Kelly Myers. Kelly Myers oh, yeah. was a big food story this year. Yeah, um, and in certain ways, heartwarming, very sad. Um, Kelly Myers of um, Chico. She uh, had a stroke, and um, it, like many people in the restaurant industry, um, medical bills can be really hard to pay for. Um, it's a business that is you know incredibly physical and doesn't necessarily involve the best health care or health insurance. And um, essentially, and the restaurant also was really struggling. You know, you have this huge person that um, is a figurehead and, and has an incredibly important role in that restaurant. When that person leaves and has to leave, um, that impacts both the restaurant and, and, of course, the family. And I think the restaurant community really understood her role in it um, in Portland and how important she was to a lot of people and and um you know, and she's
1: very very well liked too. Of course, that yeah, comes into play
3: absolutely. And people, you know feel like they owe her and also f- like her and want her to be okay and and want her to have a safe and s- somewhat worry free recovery. So people essentially came together and started tons of fundraisers across the city um to help Chico and her family um and it was it was really amazing to watch how many people participated in that, you know, both individual hey, fundraisers. I'm not
1: usually doing things like that and <laughs> yeah. and we did a we did an event there and right. I would just give um all the restaurants I think we had 45 restaurants wow. who came to the fore. I went out and solicited yeah. gift certificates to give to patrons who paid I think $250 for the night. We gave all proceeds to Kelly, so it was an it was a eighty eight hundred dollar evening, so mm-hmm. I I just want to thank all the folks who the restaurant, the industry, and the people who patronized that evening. Mm-hmm. That was pretty cool. So mm-hmm. yeah, it it even brought me into the
3: mm-hmm.
1: into the mix as well.
3: It's uh yeah, and I, I think it's awesome that you did that. I think it's it's I'd I'd love to see in general a restaurant community that you know that hopefully. Gets to a place where there's um, an expectation of healthcare. And and I think that at this point in time, you know, it's another part of that larger conversation about what goes on in the restaurant and what, you know, in the kitchen. And it's, you know, Eater came out with a great story specifically about this about, you know, how crowdfunding and fundraisers become an incredibly important thing in sh- the restaurant. And that shouldn't workers. be the healthcare. Right.
1: That shouldn't be healthcare in this country. But yeah. somehow, it, yeah, it I is. have a lot of yeah. friends who've had. GoFundMes and mm-hmm. to pay for an operation. Right. It sh- shouldn't be. Yeah. So it's, uh, have you heard anything about... I haven't heard from Liz recently. You know, uh, I'm Kelly's, afraid I
3: haven't, but I believe that things are going doing, pretty well. She's
1: doing better. Yes. Yeah, that I understand. That's right. great to hear. And, you know, restaurants are families, yes. too. So when, when something like that happens to Kelly, it affects all not only her family, but the, the yeah. restaurant itself, the neighborhood. It, it It's a lot. So. Yeah. Um, There's
3: something so personal and intimate about um, going to a place and sitting at a table and enjoying a meal. You know, I think that um, the people who feed us, you know, it's the art form that keeps us alive. So I think... Oh,
1: I haven't heard that one. That's good.
3: That That's one I came up with when I was 16. So hopefully it's not someone else's that I, you know, forgot that I pulled. But anyway, um, yeah, it's, you know, it's an art form that keeps us alive. And um, I think that the people who make food are incredibly passionate and thoughtful people, um, and the people who have restaurants and can inspire that kind of community within the kitchen and also in the dining room, um, those are incredibly special places, and I, f- I think that people like Kelly— um, they do a good job of sort of creating that feeling of, I want to support this person. I want I want everyone here to be taken care of.
1: Well, that's always been the nature of this food world. And even though it's the everything's changed a lot in the last few years, mm-hmm. it's still a collaborative community and Absolutely. people care about one another. And there are more people to care about each other now. Yeah. So um, that's good to see. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's three stories. What else in terms of openings, closings? What was the... What was the most shocking closing?
3: We had some tough closings this year. I I think um, Park Street Kitchen was... Park Kitchen. uh, Park Kitchen, excuse me. Yeah, that... I think I combined that with Irving Street. Anyway. um,
1: And just to make sure, so Sarah's happy, uh, Irving Street Kitchen is not... Yes, they're fine.
3: Um, But Park Kitchen was a particularly interesting... Closing, pseudo-closing. It it sounds like they're doing some events there every once in a while, but in terms of like a restaurant you can pop on into, um, that was a tough one.
1: And it had been around a long time, and it was on the forefront of this food scene, I think since 2003? Yeah, I believe it was open. 15 15 years? Right, that sounds right. And we plan on, uh, I've talked to Scott Dolich, the owner and Mm -hmm. chef there, um, and he will be coming on the oh. podcast to explain what's
3: what's going on there now,
1: what's going on there. Or what happened? He couldn't, right. he couldn't at the time because of, uh, Lawsuits, uh for, yeah, yeah. for loss of legal reasons, but we hope to have him on too. So that, that, yeah, that's right. quite sad. And and a lot of people had been through the park kitchen mm-hmm. kitchen.
3: Yes. So. Yes. It was, it was a definite jumping off point for a lot of people. Right. Um, and you know, I think the people that immediately come to mind are the whole fast dining guys, you know, um, but that is such a. There's so many people. Yeah, you couldn't start.
1: I was just about to start reeling some off, but mm-hmm. then I realized I'd leave people a lot off. off but yeah, yeah right. there are a lot.
3: So um, another restaurant like that is um, Woodsman Tavern. Um, you know, in general, Dwayne Sorensen had an interesting year um, in terms of trans transitioning Roman Candle into Holiday, creating the sort of health health food restaurant. Um, but he also sort of decided to um, cut. Woodsman Tavern Loose and essentially closed that restaurant. Um now Russ and Daughters. No, not Russ and not Daughters. Russian.
1: Tasty and Daughters. <laughs> oh,
3: let's try this again. Tasty and Daughters will be opening there um in that place. Um it's it's a particularly sad one. For me, I I have good memories of that restaurant. Um and again, it was a place where a lot of people Worked. It was interesting to see, I think Michael Russell noted that uh, Kay Millard uh, worked there, which is interesting to me. Um, but yeah, a lot of people went through that kitchen, um, including Doug Adams, of course, and many others. Um,
1: which, yeah, we'll get to that in yeah, the next episode.
3: Probably. Right. <laughs> um, but yes, that is, that's a particularly sad closure. Um, and then there's, of course, Ray, the closure of Ray, which... Um, was Jen Lewis's restaurant um on North Williams.
1: Not only the closure, but the closing of a career.
3: Yes. Um Jen Lewis I think for a long time was considered a big player um in the Port- Portland food scene. And you know, very slowly but surely a lot of her businesses closed. Um and I think she kind of had, you know, um there another one of those sort of Internet controversy stories is, you know, the story about the fried chicken, um, posting a picture of fried chicken on the anniversary of the death of Martin Luther King, um, saying that it was his favorite food um, as sort of her rationale for that. But a lot of people, you know, claim that it was an incredibly racist uh, way to honor the death of a important civil rights leader. Um, and it, I think it caused a significant backlash on that front. Um so her restaurant went up for sale um, and stayed open, but it went up for sale in the spring, I believe, and then eventually did close right at the end of the summer. Um, but a very exciting restaurant is opening in that Absolutely. spot. We'll save it for next time. I think
1: it's the most exciting. Well, let's save it for next yeah. time. Let's wrap up 2018, yes. this episode. So the defi- I, I, I don't think you would argue that wine bars would define 2018 in Portland, right? This was the year. No, of the, I
3: think that's absolutely right. This was yeah. the year
1: of the wine bar. Anything mm-hmm. else that might uh, come to mind to define this past year?
3: You know, it's it's interesting. I, in terms of like favorite meals, I absolutely had one of my favorite meals of the year at Master Kong, which is a family restaurant, um, sort of home style Chinese food, and they have a great congee with like lots of ginger and you get that salty pork kind of quality to it. And I had that meal with Maddie John, my predecessor mm-hmm. um, at Eater. And it's still like kind of one of my most memorable sort of lovely meals. I think that there were some really cool family restaurants that opened this year. Uh, Casa Zoraya is another example up in North Portland.
1: So here's the deal. I um, The reason I asked the question on the the difference at Eater with a younger editor was because when you did your best restaurant, and and I talked to some people like about this at the Oregon <laughs> uh, food, uh, what was it? Eat Oregon now yesterday. Yep. Um, that that list was you had pe- restaurants and people I'd you know that weren't on the in Other my list. Yeah, yeah, they weren't there for me. It's the first time ever I looked at it and it was like, I felt like I was completely out of the loop. So yeah, so there are a lot of new things in there that you that were those. I didn't find them to be in the news that much, but you brought them into the news.
3: They were people that I think were really talented and important chefs that maybe sort of fell by the wayside. Um, you know, I I think in general it's important for Eater as a brand and, and Brooke, the journalist and editor, to include a, a wide ver- r- sort of diversity in the kind of restaurants that we celebrate. And that means maybe not necessarily just fine dining, you know, Tweezy food, but also, you know, the really good, you know, homestyle cafe or, you know, counter service sort of restaurant. Um, so speaking of counter service restaurants, I, my chef of the year was Deepak Call. He um, owns Buna uh, in northwest Portland. Um, I thought he and I, I think that he was really emblematic of a new era in Portland food, where I think that, I mean, in general, we're seeing more and more really high quality restaurants that are counter service restaurants that are really casual.
1: Cuz it's the, it's the it's the model that works.
3: Right. Exactly. Um and I think that it was amazing to watch Deepak sort of come in here, start to pop up at a brewery and within a year open a restaurant um in a traditionally pretty, you know, uh high-end neighborhood, you know. Um but he's making a food um in terms of the Portland restaurant scene that has been hard to find Kashmiri Indian food. Um, and he does it with such, an understanding of flavor and, and, you know, every dish there feels incredibly powerful. Um, you know, it's, it's meticulously done and, and you have layers of flavor there that are really interesting. Um, but you're also seeing, you know, this is a chef that is incredibly well-trained. He, he's worked in kitchens around the country. Um, And you can really see that, you know, fine dining background in these very casual rice bowls he makes. And I I think that's super cool and exciting in general. I I was really happy um, with the work he did this year.
1: That's uh, you know, it's interesting to hear you talk about a restaurant Mm -hmm. because you, in the in that vein, you don't do that on the pages Mm -hmm. of Eater that Mm -hmm. much. You will, right? You can see. So now that I think about it. You came from you came writing as a critic and with that kind of mm-hmm. na- narrative and that kind of prose, and now you've got to cover news. Maddie mm-hmm. w- did what you did for years, and then he went. Then all of a sudden, we're reading his reviews. His right, exactly. Reviews. We swap spots. Right. Yeah. So, so that was interesting, and I think mm-hmm. that helped. That defined this Portland food world. You guys are important. Eater is important. Yeah. And I think that 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 was a, that helped define it this year. You know, I had a list of things that I wanted to... We're running out of time, mm-hmm. unfortunately, but um, that I just wanted to mention. Do you have any others that were particularly the experiences? Uh,
3: um, well, you know, in general, it, not necessarily new ones, but I, I went to May's uh, Bacchanalia dinner mm-hmm. this year, which was... I'd gone to a couple of her meet-and-threes, but... That meal, I'm
1: s- oh, the Wednesday, yeah. Which, did it become Tuesdays? Yes, I think it went so. on a Tuesday anyway. Right.
3: Um, just an incredible meal, and I have family in the south, and it's so cool to see those recipes really honored in a way that is exciting and different, but also you know, honoring things like just really good, you know, collard greens. It she, she's so smart, she's such a good chef. I, it was a great meal.
1: She's um almost leaves me speechless because I think her food is so great or mm-hmm. the experience of doing what she does is so great. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think that as we move her career moves on now and she mm-hmm. opens her own restaurant and then may is going to be part of what she does and not yeah. all of what she does. It's, uh, it's really fascinating. Right. And that is, not to talk about what's happening in 2019 <laughs> this week, because we're going to talk about that next week. But um, yeah, what she does, if anybody hasn't been to May yeah. yet, get there at some point. And right. I'm sure Yondra will have bits and pieces of that. No pun intended. But mm-hmm. um, uh, Maya Lovelace, yes. if we didn't mention her name.
3: Maya Lovelace is her full name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pop up as May. Yeah,
1: uh, Really great stuff. Mm-hmm. I have a couple here. that yeah. same thing that didn't. Uh, didn't necessarily open last year, but that I caught on to, mm-hmm. and I you know the places that I started frequenting a lot. Mm-hmm. And uh, one, I think the the my favorite discovery of the year was Proud Mary. Mm-hmm. and Mary. sort of full disclosure because it's a chicken and egg situation. I discovered it and went and loved it so much after a little while. I said to uh, Nolan Hurdy there, let's uh, what what is this Melbourne coffee experience? And so we're going to do a trip there. Yeah. with him. So I'm really excited about Sounds that. Like but I, I, that was because I got, I just was sitting there yeah. going, I haven't had an experience like this in a long time. It's hard to get, it's not hard, but there's so many new openings. Getting excited is a, is a good thing. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, what else? Oh, out at the coast, Salmon Berry Saloon. That was a significant yeah. one for me because we have a Portland chef serving mm-hmm. uh, someone who had Cut their teeth in Portland, serving Mm. some great food out there. It's not—he's not the only one. Um, The other story I thought was interesting was kind of under the radar. I didn't even discover it Mm. until I went to Rowe and found out Trent Pierce was no longer there.
3: Right? Yeah. Uh, When we covered that at some point, it was—it was definitely a surprise, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it was a surprise me, and um, I'm sorry about that. I'm sure he'll pop up uh, somewhere else, and of course. uh, Mayleen Chavez doing her pop up out in the coast at Never Shellfish yeah. Farms was really cool for me. I love The fish other fish. thing I think I had more of than anything else was the raspberry croissants at Checkerboard,
3: <laughs> uh, which are also
1: at, at uh, Trifecta, I would imagine.
3: Oh, that's but an interesting one. I like that idea of like, what did you have more than anything else? That's,
1: that was it, I think. And then um, my biggest surprise mm-hmm. of the year. And unfortunately, you can't get it. Was um, Gabriel Pascuzzi? We did a an event at so Stacked, gracious. and so he served what I think was fried chicken that could go up against Maya Lovelace's.
3: Wow! At, at, yeah, and
1: claim. everybody there agreed. Wow! So, um, but he can't. Obvi- apparently, he can't do that because it would dominate his kitchen, yeah. uh, the fryers, and so. Anyway, it it was fantastic. I just saw him on. What episode was that? Some, um,
3: oh, beat, not, was it Beat Bobby Flay? Beat
1: Bobby Flay, yeah. yeah. So he, he was great on that. I thought he had a lot of uh, composure. And yeah. that is, uh, you know, there are some other things, but I think those were the... I, I also got to go to Lobster Month at the Mac Club. Oh, yeah? And that's a significant thing because huh. the Mac Club, you know, serves 2,000 covers a day. Talk about the Portland food world. Yeah. That place is busy. So... Um, Philippe Lowe and Chef Philip Oswalt treated us to an incredible lobster wow. fest, which that's my thing. So I, uh, I love a lobster. So that's good. So those are mine. Court, you haven't been uh, chiming in here. You got any particularly memorable?
0: Where do I begin? <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> or where do you end? Oh, well, well, we're fresh out of time. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll, t- I'll give you one more. That, mm. and, and Court will agree to this. Just Putting words in your mouth and okay. food in your mouth. Ringside Fish House was a really sad closing. Oh, absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. Because um, that we were we were going there a lot. Oh yeah, <laughs> I and mean, it was close to here. Right,
3: a restaurant too in general. Yeah, yeah.
1: John, and it was it was sad to see close. But Ringside Fish House, or Steakhouse is still there, serving some of the some of the same things, mm-hmm. but uh, quality. Thank you for this recap of 2018. Absolutely. Let's move on to 2019. Do you think you can come back next week? You can draw. However, how you get I here? love an Are
3: opportunity you... to talk. Yes, well, not stop. Yeah,
1: we love having you here. So <laughs> let's uh, let's wait till next week and and um, talk about what you're looking forward to in 2019.
2: Sounds great.